0: open your bibles to James chapter 3 verse 13 this morning James 3 James 3 verse 13 there's some dynamics among the uh, Jews that had to be sorted out and written, written into Jewish believers we believe just after the stoning of Stephen among the dynamics that they had we can relate to as Americans they had zealots We, as patriots in the United States of America, can relate to them. Uh, We have liberty, and among our most important liberties, we have religious liberty. Men fought and died for that liberty, and we are charged with standing, fighting, and dying for that liberty today. This patriotic sense can also sometimes... Um, lead to uh, not just a sense of patriotic defense for our nation, but a bit of rebellious belligerence on the part of individual Americans. In other words, if you tread on my rights, I'm right there on you, ready to snap. And, uh, and, and that would be the zealots of those days. Um, the, uh, in James' days, in fact, it, it went much further than that. Uh, you might remember when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified between what our Bibles say were two thieves. Uh, The the, the Bible said that Jesus was, was crucified between two of what they call thieves. But the Greek word there is insurrectionists. And keep in mind, Pilate made a custom of releasing... One prisoner a year at the Jewish festival. Now, this would not be a kind thing for the Romans to do if you had a bunch of rapists and murderers of common citizens and thieves to say, oh, it's your Jewish festival. To do you a favor, I will release one of these rapists for you, uh, one of these thieves for you. No, no, no. These were insurrectionists. These were zealots who had acted against Rome and they were about to pay the price. So, Jesus was crucified between two insurrectionists, which, by the way, means they knew their Torah. And means when one of them, both of them were mocking Jesus at the beginning of the day, but after the earthquake and the three hours of utter darkness, one of them said, Lord, remember me when you come into my kingdom. He was converted. Uh, who shared with him the script? He didn't need any, he knew the scriptures. He came to be convinced that this was his Messiah, a very, very poignant moment in history. But uh, so you have at the crucifixion of Jesus, you have insurrectionists, uh, you have uh, zealots. Here in the book of James, James is going to address those who are murderers in chapter 4 and verse 1 and 2. Murderers. I believe he's dealing with, possibly, zealots. We'll see as we look at this. And then, of course, 20 years after James writes... The Zealots have an insurrection against Rome in 66 AD that is put down in 70 AD, and that movement is ended once and for all. Um, But uh, nonetheless, let me just ask you, what kind of leader do you want in your local church if you're a Zealot? If you are somebody who believes that part of the local church's mission ought to be to fight against Rome, and when I say fight, I mean to the death against Rome, well, probably something far different than what James has in mind. Let's look at James chapter 3, verse number 13. Who is wise and understanding among you. By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy... And selfish ambition exists. There will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I'm just going to keep reading because James didn't have chapter divisions uh, when he wrote this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today and we understand what kind of spiritual wisdom you want in the church, I pray that we would fall in line with your expectations. I pray, Father, that we would divorce ourselves from personal ambition, from jealousy over someone else. God, from self-promotion, from grifting in your church, uh, doing things that would advantage us in the midst of your program and your people. Uh, Father, I pray that your spirit would just show us ourselves as we open your word and that I and everyone who listens to me would be changed by your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin our study, uh, we're going to start here in in verse number 13. Instead of clamoring to show your wisdom, display it by doing good for others in gentleness. Now, to understand verse 13, we might want to go back to chapter 3, verse 1. Where James says, Do not, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. And that, of course, launched a conversation about the tongue and how a small tongue can uh, light a great fire. A small bridle leads the great body of a horse. A a small rudder leads the great body of a ship. And a small tongue in a pastor or leader's or teacher's mouth can lead astray a congregation. So he cautions against being many teachers. This was an era where people wanted to be the rabbi. They wanted to be the teacher. There was a great deal of prestige involved in that. And there apparently was a great deal of greed and of self-centeredness. And so here we are at verse number 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So instead of clamoring to show your wisdom, do so by doing good for others in gentleness. Wisdom is not primarily an intellectual pursuit it is grounded here in practice and in conduct. So wisdom in this verse is not represented by what you think, but it is represented by what you do. Uh, notice again, by his good conduct, let him show it by his works in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom is not obtained by a theological degree. It is not obtained by being a great intellect. That can reduce others in an argument. It is not displayed through strong leadership that causes people to cower in fear and go along with what you think. It is displayed through meekness. Wisdom is displayed through gentleness. Meekness is not weakness. Gentleness is not weakness. A few weeks ago down in, uh, in Nicaragua, we're visiting Stephen Jean. I, I sat on a horse, and this horse, the, the uh, owner of it, had it's a Spanish horse that dances. You know, it, it's its front legs kind of cross. And, and it's he worked it in and, and about 10 minutes, he had that thing just foaming with sweat. This horse gets worked, I think, nearly daily. And, and so, this horse, the definition of every muscle, every vein was tight. It was just a beautiful creature. And yet, when he handed it over to me, who only rides horses very little, that horse let me on. I led it wherever I wanted to go. It didn't give me any problem. It was a great and powerful creature, but its gentleness made it all the more attractive. And you might be a great and powerful personality. I mean, God just makes us. You might be a great intellect. And you will be so attractive to your God If you will be humble and gentle and meek. And there was nothing weak about this horse. Nothing weak. It was gentle and it was to be prized for that. And so are you. God is close to the humble but the proud he knows from afar. The word, the word meekness, gentleness here, as I look it up in the, the Greek dictionary, says that it has the quality of not being overly impressed with yourself. <sighs> overly impressed with yourself. You ever struggle with that? I'm good. <laughs> Some of you have negative self-talk, so you, you, you might go the other direction. But too often we say, oh, I am good. I, others should be impressed. That would not be meekness. Again, as we look forward to next week's passage, and, and initially there was, just, there was really just one author I was reading who kept talking about these zealots in this, and I've been ignoring it up to this point in my studies, you know, as we've been going through James, I've been kind of ignoring it, thinking, ah, eh, he's kind of on the fringe, but, uh, but, 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 you know, as I look at this with the zealots, uh, the, the zealots of Israel, the wisdom of James to be meek is going to be proven out 20 years later to be correct. Because the zealots are going to die by 70 A.D. Uh, They are going to destroy their nation by 70 A.D. So as we see the zealot patriotism, it was alive at the time of Christ uh, with an insurrectionist on either side. It's alive in the mid-40s. When James is writing, it'll be alive in the mid-60s when they actually rebel. And James is not arguing for one trait of wisdom, but two. One trait is meekness, which I've talked about extensively. The other is good works. Look there again um, in, in the middle of verse number 13. Uh, it says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works. That word good conduct, conduct re- refers to your habit, your manner, your, the, the continually the way you behave, your conduct. And what is your conduct to include if you have spiritual wisdom? Good works. Meek helpers are not just people that, there are gifted people who have the gift of helps. So that's a Holy Spirit gift. We see that in the New Testament. But that's not the only uh, helps that occurs in the local church. It's uh, uh, Helps and, and, and good works are not just, oh, certain people are made a certain, this is commanded of every believer it's a matter of a life principle that, that, that causes you to behave in such a way that it becomes a habit, it becomes a conduct, a manner in which you are. So make it a habit, good works, meekness. As we continue here, point number two. By the way, Jason, could you turn on at least the recirculating fan for me? Thank you. Um, as, as, as we look here point number two, if you are harboring jealousy towards someone special, Do not boast and so lie against the truth. Verse number 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. The person who harbors jealousy tends to boast. And I'm just looking up this definition. It's to boast at the expense of another or to boast against someone. Boasting is such a skill set, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to be good at it. Just think of how, uh, think of what it is like to boast and be good at it. You have to say enough to make an impression that's favorable, okay? You're trying to say enough to make people regard you more than they currently do, but not say so much that you give it away, that you're a boaster. You you see the balance? Uh, It's a skill set, and a lot of people are very practiced at it. They know how to drop the right words at the right time, and the agenda is to have, uh, have you think just a little bit higher of them. But this boasting is a lie, and the liar knows it's a lie because the liar knows in his heart there's bitter jealousy, that he's ambitious for his own status. The term jealousy here is the term zeal. Now, the word zeal is a neutral word when it's alone, but it has an adjective with it, bitter zeal, bitter zeal, where you look at somebody else and and you're just bitter about it. There's just something unsettling. And you don't like it. Either they've got something going that you don't, or you want something going so that you could just compare favorably to them. There's just something bitter in the soul that wants to be more highly regarded, more highly appreciated. Selfish ambition shows up as two words in our language, but it was one in the original. It means strife. It means contentiousness. The only other use of that word in Greek prior to the New Testament was uh, in... um, uh, let me just see who it was here again. Um, ah, Aristotle. Aristotle had used it. And he used it to talk about politicians of his day. And what he was talking about in context was how narrowly self focused politicians of his day were. Narrowly self focused. Your tasks with leading a nation, with governing a nation, with benefiting a nation, and yet you get into office and you become narrowly self focused. We see this in Africa, where you have nations that are far more gifted in terms of natural resources than the United States of America. Their poverty is not related to natural resources. It is related to some leader who has to have his palm greased on every transaction that happens, so much so that good, honest businesses can't do business there. Trade doesn't take place there. And because of his narrow self-interest, rather than being a less rich but generous leader of a mountain, he is the king of a molehill. Narrow self-interest. Christianity must be done in a spiritual wisdom that is humble. We cannot show up here wanting to be regarded as worthy, as wise, as superior to anyone in any area. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and if you have any other agenda, you are playing a game, and you ought to stop lying to yourself. We cannot do church so as to advantage ourselves materially or psychologically with how people regard us. Here's an application for you. Model the wisdom that you want to see in others at the local church. Model the wisdom that you want to see in others. As we continue here, James says boastful and competitive ambition is a trait that belongs to the natural worldly man. It is demonic. It is accompanied by every foul practice imaginable. Look at verses 14 through 16. This is really verse 15 and 16, but we have to get 14 to keep it in context. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly Unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Some definitions here. Uh, wisdom that is pure. Pure means holy. Peaceable means conducive to harmonious relationships. Gentle. Uh, it's interesting because the, Greek, uh, the Greek, Greek dictionary went somewhere I would never would have guessed with gentle. Listen to this. Not insisting on every right of law. You ever have people where it's like, don't tread on me? I mean, that is, isn't that, that's our natural American response. Don't tread on me. I have rights. Nobody treats me like this. Gentle is not insisting on every right of law. It continues with the words yielding, kind, courteous, tolerant. Not tolerant in our modern day age where, you, you know, everything is valid and we accept everything is valid. No, no, but tolerant in terms of putting up with a lot from other people. Open to reason. Open to reason means well persuaded. You're able to be persuaded with good argumentation, good logic. Full of good fruits. That means you're useful, you're beneficial. Impartial, that means you're not divisive, but you are unwavering. Sincere means genuine, without pretense. That means you're the real deal. Uh, We talk about the simplicity of true greatness. Complicated people who put on like they're great aren't great. Great people are very simple people. So we're open to reason. When it says open to reason, that does not mean that we're gullible. Uh, that, that, That does not talk about some weak faith that fails to take a stand. Uh, We're not talking about pluralism, where all views and all religions are valid. Not at all. Open to reason does not mean we fail to defend doctrinal truth from the Word of God vigorously. It means that we live like family in the local church. We assemble here with different ideas, different desires, different needs. And this is a call to find opportunities to put yourself behind others, to put their concerns before your own, to promote the good fortune of others. In matters that do not involve doctrine, truth versus error, sin versus sanctification, there are many times and many ways for each of us to not each have it our way, but to allow someone else to have it their way. Now, keep in mind that if James is countering zealot, zealot philosophy, he is countering people who are, take charge, take matters into my own hands, even through violence. And he's saying, no, 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 be open, be reasonable. And ask yourself this, uh, are your zealot approaches to life showing mercy and good fruits? Is it impartial? Is it sincere? James said that godly wisdom is peaceable here in these two verses. It's peaceable. That means it brings peace. And too often we confuse peace with the absence of conflict. Oh, nobody's fighting today, so we have peace. (laughs) We've got ground rules. (laughs) We just don't go there. All right? Um, That's not peace. True peace is harmony. Uh, it, it, it's not that we, it's not just that we don't fight with each other. It's that we are traveling together in unity of purpose, in love. The other thing we can do is we can confuse expediency with peace. And uh, just to use uh, an illustration from today in our business meeting that we have this morning and then again this afternoon. Today, we're going to hear from one another regarding a building project. We have been hearing from one another for four years regarding a building project, (laughs) right? It's been a lot of work. It's remarkable. I, I need to remark on this. Our building committee has spent hours and days on different ideas, and we've come and we've presented them. And in fact, some of these ideas, it was so hard to come up with the right approach that I actually... Drove over to Lake City, met with the architect, and, you know, bringing committee members with me. And we present them here, and they're wiped out. It's like, yep, no, we don't like any of that. And so just off the table it goes. And that is something our building committee embraces. Uh, We're not talking about expediency. We are here to serve a congregation. And and the fact is, uh, you know, we've spent uh, over a year in earnest on this particular building plan, and it has been our privilege, it has been our opportunity to serve the congregation. If it all gets shelved, we have still served. The reward is still there forever, right? And, and, and so we're not talking about expediency. We're not talking about having a quick meeting. Uh, we are talking about working through our understanding and to not just have an absence of conflict over this, but to have unity. It won't be easy necessarily, but we should have unity, And again, thank you to everybody who has served. As we leave today's text, I want to go to verse number 18 and just really focus on this because there is a poetic picture here that can be lost to those of us who are not farmers. Chapter 3, verse number 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I read it with that emphasis because you have a harvest contrasted with the process of sowing. If I go down to Hardware Hank or to the, to the granary and I get six ounces of sweet corn seed and I sow that, when it comes time for harvest, I'm not expecting six ounces of sweet corn. I'm not expecting five pounds of sweet corn. I am expecting hundreds of pounds of sweet corn from those six ounces, right? So you've got the sowing And you've got the harvest. The harvest is huge. The harvest is large. And so James says, would you like to have a harvest of righteousness? How are you going to get there, Cornerstone Baptist Church, to have a harvest of righteousness? You are going to sow in peace. You are going to sow in love, gentle humility. You, you are going to sow in peace and you are going to make peace. And then somewhere down there, you're going to see a harvest of righteousness. So James today tells us God's servants and godly wisdom bring peace to his congregation as they reflect humility and reasonableness. While Showy self-promoters clamor for supremacy. I began the sermon speaking of zealots, people who took war into their own hands to settle political strife in the broader culture. They were in Israel, and I'm beginning to think that James is writing about that in the book of James, that they were in the early Jewish church as well. Otherwise, when we get to next week's text, James is just speaking metaphorically when he speaks of murder, and he mentions it in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He mentions the rich murdering the poor in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Are those metaphors, or are we literally talking about taking human lives? What is very clear is that these people are very judgy people. They will speak evil of their brothers in Christ as they clamor for their way in the local churches. So examine your conduct today. Is your conduct true wisdom? If so, it will reveal itself in good works done in the meekness of wisdom. Honestly, when I look at Cornerstone, I look at what I would consider to be a meek people, strong and powerful. There are some of you that I would not want to cross in the real world as unsaved people. Okay? Because you do have power of personality, and it could be very ugly, but you're meek. And I would say that characterizes our church. You are a meek people. Your power is brought under control. I also think you have a burning desire for the glory of God to be seen in your life in this congregation. And I think you're very concerned about doctrine and God's will, how we apply this doctrine to our lives. I think you're very, very concerned. Um, Even as your pastor, I know I can't get cute and start violating God's Word because you in meekness would take me aside and we'd be talking, would we not? Everything I have to say, it's like, uh, I'm saying this, verse 1. I'm saying this, verse 2. That's just the people you are, and that is good. You insist on the Word of God, and you should. Let's continue to forsake self-promotion, self-interest, Forsake any desire to play the part of a leader who can turn the will of a people group to the left or the right just for the sport of it, because you're good at that. Let us pray for God's spirit to reign, and let us do good works for one another in meekness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and this word from James. I pray that you'd help me to understand what he is facing in his historical context over the next week. I pray, Father, you'd help us to understand your word. Uh, Lord, we know this, that our pride and our boasting will not accomplish your great will. Lord, help us to be a meek and humble people. Help us to be very attractive to you as a congregation of people who do not insist on self-promotion in their own way. Uh, God, I, I pray that you'd be honored and we thank you. Bless our meal that we're about to enjoy together, the fellowship around that meal. And Lord, bless the fellowship of talking through a large, confusing issue for which, humanly speaking, there is no right or wrong. And so, God, uh, we don't know. Should we build? Should we not build? We pray that you would guide us through your people and through the conversation that follows. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I am going to... uh, Sorry about that, Jason. I'm going to have... Oh, I missed point number four. I apologize. I just went, I blew right through it. Wisdom from above is characterized by purity, peace, gentleness, reason. There you go. Okay. Sorry about that. All right, Grant. Thank you.